From the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, this is The Steady Stater, a podcast dedicated to discussing limits to growth in the steady state economy. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brian Check, and our guest today is Chris Matthews. Yes, that Chris Matthews of hardball fame. Can I bring up something that you were you, you're, you're pushing me to think beyond my usual daily worries? Um, you know, I think no matter what we say about school, and we may not like it when we're kids, we do remember what we learned in school. Most of it, we really do. You know, that's how we learn to write. I mean, certainly how to read. We learn how to read, and we still can read. We learned a lot of things in school. We learned basic arithmetic, which we use all the time. We use addition all the time. We put things together. We have to add up costs and things and bills and everything. We do use a, most of what we learned in school. But one thing we stopped teaching ourselves was geography. The idea of re- resources and, and water and uh, navig- navigation in which there's uneven uh, coastlines and even coastlines and you want an uneven coastline so you can have harbors all the basic notions of what's life like on this planet and how we make it each day. And it's all about resources, agriculture, mining. It's everything. It's human life, but it's about limits. It's about what people have and what they need and, and what's there. And where do we live? Nobody that teaches geography anymore. I'm sorry. It's not certainly not a high, high level uh, edu- education uh, goal. People don't know anything. They can't show you a map. They don't. They couldn't give you a map of the United States. But Al Franken actually could actually draw a map. He's one of the few centers could draw a map of the United States. It was a gimmick. We don't know where we're at. We don't know where the water comes from. Where our food. Comes. We don't know anything. We don't understand where the the turkey comes from. We don't. We don't know where the the spam comes from. I mean, it's a reality of ignorance, and uh, yeah. and I think that may be a first set. Of, uh, of goals is teach people when they're in their teens or younger what world they live in, yes, you know, in terms of resource. Because they don't, you know, we think theoretically now, we think technologically, we think about, we all want to be Steve Jobs, but I don't, but every uh, kids all want to be Steve Jobs. Why? Because they can make money at it. It's state of the art. It's all about stuff where you don't even have to meet anybody. You can live on a, a technology like we're using right now. You don't have to even bump into anybody. It's uh, live in your basement. But it's a whole world that they live in now and enculturated it. So they want it. They think there's a culture of simply being, you know, uh, virtual. So right. we've gone from not studying geography to not actually living in a space with other people. We're we're almost like Lilliputians from, you know, from Dean Swift. Yeah. You know, I, I I think there is a danger in becoming schizoid, not connected to your physical reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe that's too deep. But it's I, I, I think people don't think about anything in terms of water supply. Out in California, they're aware of water. I'll tell you, oh, yeah. that was an issue. Yeah, they they do know that there's, and they fight over it state by state, the Colorado River, how it gets uh, diverted, et cetera, et cetera. They're aware of it, of life on this planet in California because the fires, we know what's going on in California. And when I worked for the San Francisco Examiner, we had a guy, one of the editors who just absolutely brilliant guy at that because that's what he studied his whole life as a journalist water and the limits of it interesting huh and yeah. uh you don't you don't get that in the big city you don't get that kind of education that there's only oh. so much I and mean, that's what the movie chinatown was all about water remember oh about, yeah that's right hmm. yeah goes way back those water issues yeah yeah it's coming to uh coming to a real head so to speak well 
Uh, I want to go back to a question. Well, it about- is going to be an issue. You know, this fracking thing in Pennsylvania, you watch that issue uh, in the next, uh, this election. I keep forgetting. It's this year. We have all these elections for governor and senator. There's going to be a lot of talk about resource in Pennsylvania and whether um, a state that needs jobs should resort to fracking. And I think the politics would say, oh, yeah. So you're not going to see much environmental general pushback on that. Uh, it's just, it's like guns in Pennsylvania or the pro-life right. issue. Uh, it's one of those things where you touch it, it's a third rail. And yeah. uh, so politicians don't want to be known as, you know, uh, Johnny Appleseed here. They're not, they, right. they don't want to be that person. Like people like Robert Redford out in California can be ostracized for being environmentalists. Mm-hmm. You know that history. I mean, it's real. A little bit. You're yeah. not the good guy if you're an environmentalist. Yeah, it's so the ironic. Mining. They want the mining. Well, we're going to continue being bad guys, I guess, here at Cassie. Well, that's, a, that's the role you've chosen, the, fair enough, it, and good for you, because the, yeah. the counter-education isn't getting there, and the geographical knowledge of who we are and what we live off of. And, you know, I do think about these, uh, a friend of mine's in solid waste, and he took me on a tour of Pennsylvania, the solid waste sites. Hmm. Big mounds of earth covering up God knows what. And what, what is our environmental concern? The heat level that gets generated spontaneously in those piles of trash and garbage. And what goes on under that has to be relieved uh, through spouts that come out and let, that lets the heat out and et cetera. And they got to protect the water supply all nearby if they can. But think about those big mounds. When are we going to go into them someday? I won't be around, I don't think, but someday we're going to be mining those solid waste dumps with all that stuff in there, but all the metal mm-hmm. and uh, other stuff in, you have to, you know, maybe there'll be a technology to re- reuse all that again. And I know that's, we all know that's coming. Anybody doesn't think about it, it's crazy. We're going to have to go back over everything we've ever used and use it again. You know, well, we can't strip mine the earth, we can't strip mine right. everything. Well, you know, the, if you want to put it this way, the apple of our reforming eye is that Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act of 1978, or FEBGA. FEBGA remains the central economic policy of the USA, and it mandates the government onto the path of GDP growth. So, uh, you know, it's, it's as antiquated in the 21st century as FDR's original Employment Act was by 1978. So we're working on these comprehensive amendments, Chris, and First of all, would you have any rules of thumb for how we should go about building support on the Hill? By the way, we would call it, we would rename it the Full and Sustainable Employment Act and would get the USA off that growth path. Oh, God, I guess you have to do this. Uh, Your natural allies would not be uh, the extractive industry states. You're not going to do well in in Utah, and uh, although you have a religious concern in Utah for the earth with the Mormon people, probably in the suburbs, the more educated people, book, book learned people who are willing to go to meetings and get involved in a green movement. And, uh, and that would be uh, probably, I don't know if more, I don't want to judge on this, but I would say uh, people that read the newspapers in the big cities and would be open to a conversation and even a speculation about where we're headed cannot and probably are not facing really close elections where the economy is shaky. Um, You know, you just got to be logical about it. The people that can get on television and bring this topic up. I know this was very, well, you remember this in the the mid seventies in the burbs. This is something you would talk about. 
Yep. And uh, mainly, but not only Democrats, mainly, but not only. And, uh, you know, you can have a conversation like that with, uh, with Leach from Iowa, uh, some of the ones around Philadelphia, the suburbs. You can get these conversations going on radio Gaylord and television. Mm -hmm. Gaylord Nelson, well, he, he headed the World Wildlife, World Wildlife Association. What a great guy he was. What a character. I mean, yeah. he knew how to enjoy life, and he was a thoughtful guy and a great personality. Mm -hmm. Again, he get wiped away by this uh, Wisconsin conservatism that's came back. Mm. You know, Ron Johnson. I mean, look at the difference. <laughs> Ron Johnson and Gaylord Nelson. You cannot think of two different people politically. My gosh, yeah. And uh, I know, gosh, but it's this cons this conservatism that says simply cut taxes, stop people at the border, and uh, whatever else. It's it's not. It's powerful, and some part of it is true politically and. Uh, socially but um it's thug it's thuggish politics but it works uh in a time where people are afraid right now i mean you mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation this is a this is a time that sort of bangs back and forth between being scary and boring you're right <laughs> it's boring there's something in our politics that lacks the the spice that got me fascinated yeah. by politics back in the 50s with kennedy and nixon i mean talk to a political heavyweights and Eisenhower was almost godly and everything was, you know, with the, the legacy of Roosevelt and Truman, it was just big time. It was, yeah. it was exhilarating to have to have a political conference, at least Stevenson even. I mean, he lost, but he was hmm. what a what a voice. He's yeah, like I mean, Ronald Muskie, Coleman. You worked for I mean, Muskie too, right? And, I, and Muskie was a, he, well, he was a light heavyweight and he was something else, a true believer in, in clean water, clean air mm -hmm. he passed those bills Brian he did oh, okay one man clean air and clean water and wow. people with Phil Hart of Michigan these were statesmen of the planet they were looking out for the big stuff and they had people oh, like Nader behind them and people like that yeah we and they were Westerners like Frank Church I mean Westerners were all those pro-environmental Westerners who came out of the uh, the Plain State or actually the Rockies uh, we're all wiped out in the 70s in the Sagebrush Rebellion, just all wiped out. All, all the conservative type people, I mean, environmentally conservative people, all were wiped out. Uh, my first boss, Frank Moss, uh, you know, uh, all those people who had environmental concerns and were building vast nat national parks and preserving the land from mining and exploitation so they could have beauty out there forever. And, right. and all that stuff got stopped. And they're still trying to peel it back, you know, out in the places like Utah. They're trying to peel back the preserved land. But that was something that they, the guys staked, staked their careers on. And uh, Nelson was one of them. And, oh, my God, Frank Church and McGovern and all those people, uh, they're all gone. Yeah, a lot has changed. And, and there was a particular change that I'm interested in vis-a-vis -vis yourself and the parties. But first, we need to take a short non-commercial break with James Lamont. Take it away, James. Hello, listeners. We hope you're enjoying the show. Like many of our guests on The Steady Stater, Chris Matthews is a signatory to the Cassie Position Statement on Economic Growth. He's one of many notable signatories among our ranks, including esteemed scientists, economists, and other thinkers. You can see a list of these notables by going to our website, steadystate.org, and clicking the Position button. Then click the Signatures and Endorsements link in the right-hand menu. 
you may see a name that proves useful in convincing friends and family members to sign the position themselves. And now, back to the show. Welcome back, Steady Staters. We're talking with Chris Matthews of Hardball Lore. I saw a quote from you from one of your Hardball episodes where you said, I'm more conservative than people think I am. I voted for George W. in 2000. And I'm really curious, were you really voting for George W. or was it more against Gore, or had you just had enough of Clintonian government by then? Well, I thought, I believed W. W. Bush when he said, I want to see some humility in our foreign policy. Humility. Humility. That was what he ran on. Not, stop bossing people around. No more, none of this hawkishness. Let's have a fight over it. Let's put our troops out there. I thought he meant it. I don't know what happened. I guess 9-11, Dick Cheney, the neocons right. in the op-ed pages of the newspapers, hawkish. All they want to do is go to war with the uh, Muslim world. I said, stop it. Stop it. Gore, God, he could have gone either direction. He could have been the biggest hawk in the world, which he was when he ran in 88. Super hawk with back, you know, people like Ed Koch liking him and people like that. I got look. Oh. I don't know which Al Gore. I voted against the hawkish Al Gore. And I voted for the humble guy, W. And I was wrong because W became the biggest hawk in the world. I think he feels guilty about it now. He's now painting. He, uh, I don't think he has any more conversations with Dick Cheney anymore. I think he, my hunch, just a hunch, he knows he got suckered into that war with Iraq. And uh, because Cheney and Scooter Libby and that whole crowd wanted to do it. I made a mistake. But yeah, I wouldn't well, say that was the people... evidence of my conservative. My conservatism is fiscal and spending. It's more like Jimmy Carter. I'm I'm with Carter on that stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's Carter. Stage, Carter understood. So. He talked. He talked about the environment and energy and all that stuff. And we have to limit it. And he, he he didn't get any points for it politically. But my God, he brought peace between Egypt and Israel. They haven't been. They had three wars but since '48. He got rid of all the wars. And if Egypt wasn't going to fight Israel, no Arab country was going to fight Israel. Now, Israel's got a, a danger, of course, from Iran. But the whole Arab world is basically you know, pacified, basically because this Southern Baptist sat down with, you know, Begin and Sadat and got him to cut a deal to recognize Israel's existence forever. So, I mean, he got, he got hardly any credit for that. He, he told the Panamanians, you can have the canal back under the condition that it stays open, it stays working, and we can use it when we do it and we get first dibs. I mean, it has worked ever since. I've been down there. The canal still works. It's bigger than ever. And Carter, instead of an endless war with the uh, Panamanians, which would have been another sore spot for us, he said, no, let's do it. The first day he's in office, he takes the oath of office up at the Capitol. And before he leaves the Capitol, he does two things. He thanks Gerald Ford for healing the country. And those guys became best friends forever, for the end, until Ford's death. They really did. I've been reading the diary. And then he sat down and with his pen pardoned all war resistors from the Vietnam War. Every single one of the men living up in Canada and everybody else was totally exonerated by him. In one act, he said, we're not going to argue about this Vietnam War anymore. I'm doing this thing. I mean, he did things like that with complete courage. And I, and I think someday he'll be recognized for it. But I don't know. It's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. The country wants a tough guy as president. They want a strong man. At least half the country does. And that's Trump. Mm-hmm. And Carter didn't look like a strong man bossing people around in the schoolyard. And they didn't think that was what they wanted. So 
Yeah. We paid and the then price. after he fired the cabinet they, <laughs> that afternoon. Well, he, he let them, he did, he fired them all, and then he got rid of the ones he wanted to get rid of. <laughs> Brock yeah. Adams and Califano and uh, the, sec the Secretary of Treasury. Okay, well, I want to go back to Gore for just a moment. and Yeah, Gore's yeah, hard he, to read because Gore is very good, and obviously his movie was great, The Inconvenient Truth. And, of course, it, he played a powerful role with that for a while, maybe permanently to some extent. I don't know about Al Gore. He, he was a... I've got a little difficult story to read the guy. Difficult to read him. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, he was ostensibly great on the environment. There was his book, Earth in the Balance, you know, way before. Yet, I feel like he led the masses astray with that old win-win rhetoric that there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. That's politics. That's politics. Yeah, well, you know, I saw him utter that, I, I call it the cynical shibboleth. It was on the Washington Mall, right on Earth Day 2000, with thousands of people listening to every word, and you know what? An utter pall came over that crowd. And right then I thought he could lose this thing because of this one lie. And then sure enough, seven mm. months later, that election came down to those few hanging chads in Florida. Well, that's, a, that's another conversation. Uh, the Supreme Court jumped in on that under equal protection. And, uh, and it was the argument that you can't have one county counting the chad is okay and the other one counting it is not okay. And that was the that was the basis of the 5-4 remedy that threw it out, threw out, stopped the voting, stopped the counting rather. And, uh, mm -hmm. well, that's another subject, boy. It is, uh, but for me, I just, I wonder if, if he hadn't bought into that, what I always also call the Clintonian rhetoric, the win-win rhetoric that you could have your cake and oh. eat it too on the economy and the environment. Gore might have won might, because he may have been seen as a truth teller in a time, you know, where, where people wanted to see that, but I don't know. We'll never know, I guess. No, I think, I think uh, this is something for you to think about, because I thought about this before a lot. There is an American uh, romance, the notion that you can avoid the, uh, you can avoid the tough trade-offs that you can have a victory through, um, oh, what's the right word? Audacity. And it, it, if you think about how football was played, our, our national sport, no matter what anybody says, it would probably, football, it's a rough game. It's, it's a Midwestern thing. And you're basically two sides pounding each other uh, at the line. And lots of injuries, kind of boring eventually, because it's just a few yards and a cloud of dust. And somebody wins a game by three to nothing or something on a kick. And it's boring. So what did we do? We found a romance, the forward pass. New Rockney and all that. And all of a sudden, oh, you didn't have to fight it out on the line. You didn't have to have trade-offs of blood and guts. You could throw, you could have a, a quarterback who could throw the ball 30 yards and you could win the game big time. We're fighting the Korean War and it's trade-offs, a horrendous fight. We're, we're down at Pusan practically trying to fight for our lives. And all of a sudden, MacArthur does the Inchon landing. He cuts in from the left and we win that we basically throw the whole battle back up to the Yalu. I mean, so we're used to that kind of incursion, that side of we don't have to trade it off back and forth. We can go around and win this. The church will try to do it with the Dardanelles in World War I, get out of the trenches and go around through Turkey. Well, we always want to find that end run. That is the American thing or the British thing. And I think that if the romance is that you can have the technology jobs, President Biden to his credit does talk like this, we can create a lot of jobs and try to save resources. I don't know what the trade-off is. It's like Reagan, which would say, 
I can cut taxes and bring in more revenue. Well, it didn't happen, but it was great romance. We don't have to trade between cutting taxes and cutting programs. Oh, no, we can just keep the same programs, the same spending level, but we'll cut taxes and there'll be more revenue coming in. By the way, he's talking about a particular line, tax elasticity. It's an economics. I studied it. It's, it does happen in a certain limited notion. You do get more revenue right. if you cut your prices, for example, it's this market. I taught it in the Africa. You might get more sales and that would make more revenue than you had before. It's always the, the, the end run, Brian. Right. It's an emotion. It's so powerful at the, the end run that you can avoid the conflict, the trade-off, because if you do the forward pass, the inchon landing or, or anything, if we can avoid it, that's better. So politicians say, you don't have to trade. You don't have to choose. I can give you yeah. everything. Yeah. Remember Roosevelt used to kid about his opponents. He'd say, his opponents, and he was so good at sarcasm, FDR. If you, listen, if you read him, I guess you can't hear him right now, but he would say, the Republicans come along and say, I can give you everything the Democrats do, and it won't cost you anything. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was a great upper-class accent of Roosevelt, and he would say it like that with so rich sarcasm, and it won't cost you anything. <laughs> that's great. And I think that's what you're talking about. I think there is a notion of the end run of the forward pass, the inshine landing, I think there really is a notion you don't have to choose because choosing hurts. Yeah, those are Nobody wants analogies. to choose. Yeah. Well, Chris, you ran for the House of Representatives some years back. When and I was 28. I recall, well, there was some speculation that you might run for the Senate in 2010, right? Well, there was speculation because I was thinking about it. Well, I'd been away. I went to college in Worcester, Massachusetts, Holy Cross, and I then I went to grad school at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I love Chapel Hill. And I went in the Peace Corps in Africa for two years. And then I came back and I worked in politics in Washington. I hadn't really been home since uh, I was 17, living at home, except for that race for Congress in the primary. And I, uh, I thought about it a lot because I had, a lot of people knew me. I had a Philadelphia accent, if you, uh, you know, recognize it, but everybody up there knew it. I talked like I was from Philly. And, uh, and I had the backing of the political machine in Philly. I had the governor's support. A lot, of, a lot of quiet support on Mayor Scranton. A lot of people said they were for me and they were going to be for me. But I just figured I'd never been up there. I didn't have a campaign organization. I couldn't make a phone call in this regard without somebody outing me and saying I did it. So I couldn't really keep it the job of covering the politics of the country. And at the same time, planning to enter it, I had to quit my job and start from scratch and raising the money and all that stuff. And I, uh, I just didn't want to make the, the leap. I was close to it, but it's, I, I respect people that have the nerve to, uh, usually they're lawyers who have something to fall back on. Uh, they know they can go back to their firm or it's, but it's a big risk to run because you can most people lose. I mean, there's usually a number of candidates for the same job and only one wins. So that's every cycle. Every time there's an election, a whole bunch of people run and one wins and all the others lose. That's why I have no problem with pensions for Congress people if they manage to get elected because the risks of losing is overwhelming. But you know what? I would have liked to be a, to be a senator. Whether I would like the job of being a senator is a totally different question. It, it's, as Gene McCarthy, one of my heroes, once said, it's a job and I don't want it. That's when he quit. He, he didn't run again in 70. Uh, it's a job of serving 10 or 20 million people or whatever the size of your state, and they call up, you better work for them. If the guy has a sewer project, this mayor, and he wants to talk about it with you all week, that's what your job is. You're really a servant if you're a good senator of the people of your state. And uh, 
that's a hell of a calling. It's almost like being a priest. I mean, you have to really believe in it to do it. Yeah. And it's very generous. If you're a really great senator, it's a generous uh, vocation. It really is, if you think about it. Yeah. Anybody who wants your help from that state deserves your help, deserves it. Okay, well, one last question, and maybe it's a good uh, segue is good from that. What, what would you say is our greatest source of hope for a democratic transition to a steady state economy? Well, it's not totally politically correct, but what the heck, Teddy Roosevelt. I think you have to have someone who exemplifies the American character and takes it into a new um, frontier, if you will, and be willing to say, we're a country that is religious to a large extent and realistic to a great extent, that we, that we can adapt, that we can recognize the future fast, better than any other country in the world. We can recognize the future better than anybody else, and we're going to charge into it. And we're going to the ones that knows what this reality is, and we're going to face it, as we did when we first came here, the Europeans came here. And we're going to be smart. And uh, we're going to do what has to be done with, with a kind of a uh, romance, if you will. And that takes a, a Teddy Roosevelt on horseback, basically, to say, we're going to do this thing. And uh, it's going to be tough and it's going to hurt a little, uh, but we have to do it. And uh, that's how we got to the moon. And that's what we, 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 we went where people hadn't gone before. And part of it is understanding. I, I, I think we won't be the only country to do it, though. I, I do look to the Germans now. I know it's odd given the history of the 20th century, but I do love the grown-ups of the world. And um, politics is ironic. A true conservative is not somebody who says no to the people who are poor or left out. A true conservative is someone who keeps the country together, who holds the country together. A conservative holds people together. They keep them from wanting to be revolutionaries. A true leader on the environment, on growth issues, has to be somebody who can hold us together and get us to see things in a consensus. And I think, look, I think Teddy Roosevelt belongs up on Mount Rushmore <laughs> because of that. And because if you have, if you go to any national park in the world, you're, you're benefiting from him. And uh, the glory of this country is our geography. I mean, it really is. And yeah, no other country in the world has our that. geography. And we got to keep it. And uh, as I said, learning our geography may be the first step to keeping it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been a fascinating episode. And I, uh... I'm sure all the steady staters out there will concur. Thanks so much for being on the show, Chris. And I really well, thanks hope for having the show. Us. Okay. Take care. Well, folks, that about wraps her up. We've been talking with Chris Matthews, a leading commentator in American politics for the past three decades. As a prolific broadcast journalist, newspaper journalist, and book author, he's probably done as much to frame the debates as any politician. We need him to keep framing, too. He gets it about limits to growth, and he understands the political challenges we face as steady staters. We need more Chris Matthews and more hardball. Hardball with the Cato Institutes and the Chicago schools and the dark-moneyed, perpetual growthers who are driving the USA and the international community to an agonizing breach. 
of Limits to Growth. I'm Brian Check, and you've been listening to the Steady Stater Podcast. See you next time.